Hey folks, I just want to let you know about my upcoming book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. If you're looking for a job or you think you might be looking for a job in the future and you're trying to up your mobility and meet new people and things like that, this book walks you through the whole process. So go ahead and check it out. It comes out on November 20th. It'll be on Amazon and you can find it as The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. Welcome to another episode of The Freelancer Show. This week, it's a solo episode with me, Reuven Lerner. Our schedules on the panel continue to be a little complex, so when we can't all get together, we just do these solo episodes. This time, we're going to talk about recession-proofing your business. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. So as I record this at the end of October 2019, there has been increasing talk about a recession, maybe in the United States and maybe worldwide. So I want to take the opportunity to talk to you about how you can recession-proof your business. Now, you can't really recession-proof your business, but I'm going to try to give you some uh, stories, experience, anecdotes, bad jokes, okay, well, you always get bad jokes from me, about what I've gone through in the past, what I've learned from those experiences, and then what you should maybe do and how I am thinking about my business over the coming year or two. Um, so that's what I'm going to be talking about this episode, and I hope it'll be useful. I hope you won't need to actually use this information, right? I hope that the world economy will continue to just skyrocket as it has for the last eight, 10 years or so, but, but you can't uh, ignore the possibility of a recession. So let's start off with some basics. What is a recession, right? What does it look like? We all hear about the Great Depression and people, probably all of you lived through what's now known as the Great Recession. But what does this mean? Um, so I'm not an economist, but I read a bit about economics. And so I'm going to try to define these things as best as possible. Uh, and if I get it a little wrong, oh well. The basic idea is that the economy of a country grows all the time, right? There's more activity, more money being created, people doing more. And you feel this in your business, right? Your business is hopefully growing from month to month and certainly from year to year. If it's not growing, then that would be a problem. So if you sort of take the aggregate of all of the businesses in an economy, an entire country, which is, of course, very large, even if it's not as large as the United States. I live in Israel, of course. Israel's a very small country, but we still have a large economy compared to any one individual person. And so every year you want to see more and more things growing. And growth means that people are making more money. People are buying more because they have more money. People are hiring more employees. People are investing more. So there's just sort of more money to go around and this is good for everyone. 
Yeah, but then the tables can turn and there can be not growth, but slowdown or even negative growth. There could be contraction. And a recession is indeed contraction of the economy where people are not spending more and more and making more and more and hiring more and more, but rather all that is happening in reverse. They are making less than they did last year. They are thus spending less than they did last year. And they are thus hiring fewer people than last year or even laying off people who had previously worked for them. So recessions are bad, but they're also part of the sort of life cycle of economies. Economies go through boom and bust cycles. They have ups and they have downs. I don't think any economist would say, not no, no serious one at least that I've ever heard of, would say we have conquered the business cycle. We've gotten rid of recessions. Um, that's just not going to happen. Uh, hopefully, hopefully the economists who are running various central banks around the world and even commercial banks and businesses have figured out ways to cushion the blow. And indeed, you could argue the Great Recession that happened in the late 2000s, like 2008 there. Um, I guess that's not late 2000s. 2008, 2009 for a few years, it would have been way, way worse if various banks had not taken uh, you know, a number of steps Federal Reserve in the United States and other central banks and other commercial banks hadn't taken more steps to stop it. Okay, so recessions will happen. Can we predict them? The answer is no. That basically a recession is by definition when we say, ah, the economy contracted over the last quarter or over the last half year, or over the last year. And so it's very easy or relatively easy to look at an economy backwards and say, aha, there was a recession or we are in a recession and it started in such and such a month last year or in such and such a month this year. But there's no way to look forward and say, aha, I know there's going to be economy at such and such a time. If you could predict the future that accurately, then you would be in an excellent position to make all sorts of investment decisions. Um, but because the future tends to be unknown and unpredictable, that's not the case. But that doesn't mean we're completely blind, right? It doesn't mean that you know, we have no idea what's going on. And so, again, as I record this in late 2019, there are a number of signs that are pointing to maybe, just maybe, a recession is going to happen in the next year or so. And some of those signs are, well, right now, the United States, at least, has been in the longest period of expansion, I think, ever. Um, and so it's been going for quite some time now, expanding, expanding, expanding. And, well, if you know, things must go out. What goes up must come down in many ways. And so because there's been this extreme expansion, um, it will run out of steam at some point. And so you might get slower growth, but you also might get a recession, meaning people getting laid off, people making less money and so forth. So we can look at trends. And when I say we, I mean economists and business journalists who actually know what they're talking about can look at trends and say, well, we see a slowing. And so um, from what I've read over the last month or so, it seems that there is either a contraction or a slowdown in the manufacturing sector in the United States. And you might say, well, I don't manufacture anything. What do I care? Aha. But these things are all interconnected. The beauty of economics and the amazing one of the amazing things about economics is how things are so intricately connected. And so maybe you are not buying, you are not manufacturing anything, but you're buying, you're buying things that have been manufactured and the manufacturers are buying things that you might make or that your clients might make. Or think of it this way, like I work with a few chip companies, helping them. I do Python training at chip companies where they do various validation. So think of it this way. If the manufacturing sector is having a slowdown, then they are not going to order as many chips 
for their factories because they're not going to order as many, they're not going to be building as many factories. If they aren't ordering as many chips, then my clients have less income. And if they have less income, well, then they're going to order fewer courses because they will have fewer employees who need my courses. And so we can't just ignore this as much as we might like to. We're not as insulated from these things as we might like to. Um, there's also the whole trade war that's happening right now between the United States and well, everyone, but especially China and to some degree Europe and so forth and even India. And so especially on the U.S. and China front, again, you might say, well, it doesn't really affect you that much. I mean, and yes, I travel to China, China a few times a year to give courses. And yes, I have begun to see, I think, some bad signs on that front. But, well, if there's a trade war that's effectively making things more expensive for both American and Chinese consumers, if things are more expensive, then they will buy less. If they buy less, then the companies making things will have less money. Um, and so these tariffs that have been put into place and the counter tariffs that have been put into place in order to sort of do a tit for tat and show the other side that we're not going to back down, uh, well, that's going to lead to a slowdown as well. And in fact, one of the companies I work with, uh, a chip manufacturer, um, has been very, very hard hit by this whole trade war with China because one of their biggest clients was was and is Huawei, uh, a large Chinese manufacturer of phones and networking equipment. So the U.S. doesn't trade with Huawei anymore, both as part of the trade war and with all sorts of other issues. That means that uh, my client will not be selling as many chips to Huawei. That means they're going to have to lay people off. And in fact, they did. Uh, and that means they're going to have fewer classes. And indeed, they've ordered fewer courses for me. So you see these things all are connected. So can we predict a recession? Again, no, we can't predict it, but we can see the sort of warning signs. And one of the warning signs for me is courses are one of the first things that companies toss out the window because... Well, if they don't need to have a course, right, they don't need it to get their manufacturing done. And so they'll maybe reduce courses. Smaller companies will get rid of them altogether. Larger companies will order fewer of them or only when they're really necessary just to save money and to have people working on day-to-day -day things rather than have them work on, you know, maybe sort of nice-to-have things. There are actually also sort of economic indicators, um, much more sophisticated than the ones that I described. There's something called the the yield curve and when the yield curve inverts, meaning basically, um, well, anyway, <laughs> when you get an inv inverted yield curve, I'm not going to sort of walk out here on economic stuff, which is kind of cool, but not the point of this podcast. Um, when you get an inver inverted yield curve, it basically means people are less certain about the future than we might like, and they are not willing to bet on long-term stuff being good as much as short-term stuff. And so um, that has actually been a pretty good predictor of recessions. I forget exactly who it was, but someone once quipped that this way we've predicted six of the last five recessions or something along those lines. So it tends to be a little overestimating, but it's still a pretty good indicator. And all of these things and all sorts of other stuff are leading to me, at least, generally an optimistic person, to get a little worried about what's going on. Hey, folks, this is Charles Maxwood. And over the last few years, I've gotten to know a lot of great people within the Microsoft community, and specifically in the .NET area. Uh, one of our guests from JavaScript Jabber, Sean Clabo, actually reached out to me and said he wanted to start a show on .NET. And there are a ton of people out there that I feel like sometimes get neglected in the .NET space. So if you're one of those folks, uh, you've been listening to maybe one or two of the other .NET-focused or Microsoft-focused podcasts for a while and thought, well, where's the devchat.tv-style podcast for me in .NET? You can find it. It's at adventuresin.net.net is spelled out, D-O-T-N-E-T, adventuresin.net.com. Go check it out today. 
Now, what does it mean when there is a recession then? What happens? And those of you who have been through the Great Recession might say, oh my God, like it's, it's nightmarish. Lots of people lose their homes and lots of people lose their jobs and lots of companies go out of business. And all of that is true. But it doesn't have to be quite as dire as what you saw in 2008 for a few years. It's also almost certainly not going to be as dire as what happened in the Great Depression what was it, 70, 80 years ago when a huge number of people were out of work and a huge number of businesses closed and people really didn't have money. These situations are rare and extreme. And and yet, and yet, even in the most extreme case, I think in the Great Depression, the numbers I saw were something like 25% of people were unemployed. Now, I'm not trying to say that 25% employment is not a big deal. It is a big deal. Uh, and even 10% employment, which we had in the Great Recession, is a big deal. But it means that most people still have jobs. It doesn't mean they're necessarily great jobs. It doesn't mean they're high-paying jobs. It doesn't mean they're jobs they want to be in. But those are jobs they have and they can continue to have and they'll work there. So a great recession does not uh, – a recession or a depression does not mean everyone is out on the street begging for money. It means, though, that there is a major slowdown. And this slowdown might happen in one sector of the economy. It might happen in many sectors of the economy. It might happen to the entire economy. And often there's what's called contagion, where it goes from one sector to another. So, for example, in the year 2000, there was a recession. And this was preceded by the dot-com bubble. What was that for you kids who don't remember it? Um, so what happened was this thing called the web, uh, which you might be familiar with, became really popular in the late 1990s, so much so that people started um, starting companies all the time. One of the companies that was started was one called Netscape. Netscape was going to reinvent the browser. They were going to, they, they called the browser actually an operating system with lots of applications. And many of us, including me, I must say, as a web developer, I laughed at this notion that the browser was going to be a new operating system that you could have lots of applications in. I mean, come on, who's going to run applications in a browser? Okay, I stand corrected. It's been 20 years. I stand corrected. In any event, Netscape went public, and they went public without any sort of profit, but they got a lot of attention. They made a lot of money, and the people who worked there certainly made a lot of money, those who had equity. And then a whole bunch of other companies also started to go public, not because they were successful, but because they wanted to raise money from the stock market. Uh, and so you could go public and you could have a whole uh, to-do about that and get your name splashed across the newspapers and, oh, what another amazing dot-com company this is. And so the thing is, people bought these stocks and then they bid them up and bid them up and bid them up and bought more and more and more. Until they realized, wait a second, these companies are not making money. And there was this, it was like almost overnight, the air came out of a balloon. And those of us who were working in the industry at the time, and I had five or six employees at the time, suddenly were left that, I'll tell you, for the year previous to that, the phone had more or less been ringing off the hook with people calling, asking if I could help them with all sorts of web applications. I was mostly doing web development at that time. And as soon as the bubble burst, it wasn't overnight. It certainly was a several month long process, but it felt like overnight, not only were people not calling me, people were canceling projects I'd been working on with them. And when I tried calling them, they were completely uninterested. Now, I saw uh, written earlier today, actually, someone pointed out that the recession in 2000 was mainly restricted to the tech sector, and it was brutal. 
Now, we laughed at the time, or some people laughed at the time, about the sorts of companies that had gotten funded. So there was a, believe it or not, an online supermarket. <laughs> what a joke. Who would do online shopping, right? Um, and they got, I think it was called Webvan, and they got lots of money, several hundred million dollars, which is, again, a joke by modern uh, standards. So Webvan got money to start up online grocery shopping, and they went under. Uh, Pets.com, very famous example. I think they raised a few hundred million dollars and they went under because who's going to buy pet supplies online? I know you're thinking, I do that. Everyone buys pet supplies online. Right. But the infrastructure wasn't there. The market wasn't there. The people weren't there. In many ways, these companies were just ahead of their time, I'd say. Um, although I certainly am not privy to all their business plans. And I'm sure they made many, many more mistakes than, I'm, than I know about. Uh, and they probably did better than I know about in many ways as well. So again, it felt like everything was just sort of going under in at least the tech sector. In the rest of the world, things went okay, more or less. Um, and so again, I felt this very directly. I was in business. I had employees. Suddenly, I couldn't pay salaries. Suddenly, I had to lay people off. And this was extremely uncomfortable. I would even say somewhat depressing having to deal with uh, being a boss and not giving people paychecks, but giving them their, well, you know, effectively their pink slips. And it was very upsetting. I had rented an office for two years. I had to, uh, after one year, I gave it back to the, or, or you know, I didn't continue the lease after one year because there was no point in having it. I had to contain costs as much as possible. And I didn't pay myself salary for the months that I needed to pay my employees' salaries to finish up with that. It was a very, very painful uh, lesson. And I'll tell you, uh, a very painful time. And one of the lessons that I learned was not to have full-time employees. I basically promised myself and my wife that I would not ever do that again and be left-handing, holding the bag. Rather, uh, since then, I've only had uh, hourly or per project employees where I pay them a large percentage of what comes into my company. And this is because I knew from then until now that recessions will happen. And if a recession happens and I have to pay people full-time salaries, I could get really sunk really quickly. Now, it wouldn't mean losing my house, probably, but it might mean losing my business, right? My business might need to declare bankruptcy. It might mean that I would have to work for several months and not actually get any income because I'd be paying back debts. So that was pretty, you know, that was pretty bad. Now, in 2008, it started not in the tech sector, but it started in the housing sector in the United States. But because everyone was sort of invested and intertwined in all sorts of different ways, and because of uh, all the banks and insurance companies and so forth that went under, well, um, it affected everyone. It affected lots and lots of different sectors. It affected housing. It affected technology. Lots of technology companies went under. Lots of technology companies laid people off. Um, you know, it affected the car manufacturers, as we know, in the United States, several of them had to be bailed out. Um, it was really pretty bad and it was pretty global as well. So these things happen, you could argue, every 10 years or so. So you could also argue maybe we're due for another one around now. And it's not like it happens on a schedule, but, you know, in some ways, maybe sort of. So what happens in a recession if you are a freelancer? As I mentioned, your clients stop calling you. Not all of them, but most of them. Those who do call you, then demand lower rates. They'll say, hey, uh, you know, there are problems right now in the tech sector. So really, you shouldn't be charging me $1,000 for this. You should be charging me 900 And if you won't, discount the rate at all. Well, I'll find someone else who will. And you know what? They might actually be able to find someone else who will. There'll be layoffs at companies. So the people you are working with will no longer be working at the company anymore. And you'll have to rekindle those relationships. 
Now, one thing that I expected to happen, which I was completely wrong about, was I expected that there would be a lot of competition. Meaning, I figured, okay, there are all these engineers who are being laid off by technology companies. If they don't have jobs, what are they going to do? Clearly, they're going to try consulting and they will all compete with me. And my accountant laughed at this notion uh, quite a lot. He said, listen, Riven, people who work for a full-time salary are not looking to then also open their own business, right? They've got enough trouble going on. They're not going to start a business as well. And on this point, he was 100% right. No one or not no one that I know of started up after being fired to do consulting. I'm sure it happened here and there, but it was not a mass phenomenon I needed to worry about. But it did mean that for a while I was struggling to find clients, that the people I depended on were no longer interested, no longer available, um, and the people with whom I had relationships were no longer really talking to me. So how have I, in the 10 years since, tried to insulate myself or recession-proof myself so that when this next happens, I won't need to worry about it. And, and what am I suggesting to you that you do as well? Okay, so there are a whole bunch of different things here that I would suggest. And some of them might sound contradictory, but I don't think they are. The first thing, the biggest thing you need to worry about is make sure you have as wide a net of potential clients to contact you and to know who you are. Now, that's generally a good idea, right? You always want lots of people to know who you are. But I have started spending more and more time in the last year, certainly in the last few months, trying to get out the word on who I am and what I do. I'm making an effort to speak at and attend more conferences. I'm sponsoring conferences as an advertiser. I'm even advertising online to get people onto my mailing list so that more people will know about me and who I am and be interested in uh, inviting me to come to their companies, come to their conferences, come to their organizations, and give courses. You want to be the big fish in the small pond. And we always say it in terms of specialization, but you need to be like, I don't know, the great white shark in the small pond. You need people to know who you are so obviously that when they need help, they're going to pick up the phone or pick up their email email program and the, on their phone and they're going to contact you right away. You want to improve your authority and your reputation to the greatest possible degree so that, so that if and when disaster strikes, it won't be 10 companies who know about you who will contact you. It'll be 100 companies who know about you that contact you. So when half of those go out of business, you'll still have a fair number who can contact you. Okay, second thing is specialization. And this goes hand in hand with the authority thing. You want to be well known for doing something and something really well. I've tried very hard over the last decade or so to position myself as a Python trainer. You know that if you've ever listened to the show. And by marketing myself, by tagging myself uh, as a Python trainer, people who are interested in Python training call me all the time. I'm constantly getting calls from new clients. And this is just in Israel, a tiny company, a uh, kind of tiny country, calling me about new potential classes that they need. Now, if I were to say I do programming and training, that's not as strong. It's just not strong. And so it might seem crazy that I'm not doing development work. It might seem crazy that I'm not even talking about doing that. But I've gotten way more work and, quite frankly, paid better doing the training than doing the actual development. Um, Jonathan Stark talks about this quite a bit in terms of there are different stages to solving a problem. And the first one is diagnosis. And so you can actually position yourself as someone who diagnoses problems. You don't have to solve it. But if you could just identify the problem in a computer system, in security, in DevOps, um, 
you know, or training, something like that, you don't necessarily need to be doing day-to-day development. And people are looking for solutions of that sort. And you will have to fill, feel out which topics are you comfortable with? Which topics do people need help with? Where are things going? Where are the trends in the market? But I, I think that's, you know, that's all very good. I just spoke to someone very, very recently um, in the last week or two who's thinking of specializing in AWS, and I was th- saying, ah, that's a great idea, specialize in AWS, but even go deeper than that, specialize in AWS security, specialize in AWS you know, scaling, specialize in AWS storage. They're, they're, AWS is such a huge, huge system now, just being an AWS specialist is probably not sufficient. If you can be that, as I said, like great white shark in the small pond, and if you, uh, and if you can start reaching out to more and more people, telling them what you do, then even if a recession hits, because remember, when a recession hits, it doesn't mean all business activity goes to zero. It means that there is less business activity. But the activity that does exist needs consultants. And you want to be in the position where you're the first in line where they call you. Um, you know, for, for first person, you get first priority. Well, they call you before they call anyone else asking for you to for your help. This means then, and I know I talk about this all the time on the podcast, start a mailing list, ASAP. It doesn't have to be big. It doesn't have to be brilliant. It doesn't have to be super insightful. It doesn't have to be super long. I tend to send very long messages, about 1,500 to 2,000 words per week to my mailing list. You don't have to do that. You don't have to be as crazy as I am. But get the word out that you are a specialist, that you know what you're talking about, that you can help people. And that will help you to grow your authority. And that will help you to grow the number of companies and people who know about what you're doing. We've been recording Ruby Rogue since 2011, and we've talked to a lot of people who have had a really deep influence, not only on the programming community, but also on the Ruby community. And as we've talked to these people, it's become apparent to me that we talk a lot about the things that make them interesting that they've done, but we don't really get into how they got into programming or how they came up in their career, how they got to be the person who invented whatever library or or technique that they came on the show to talk about. And so I put together a show where we actually highlight these things. We talk to them about how they got into programming. We talk to them about how they got into Ruby, maybe how they got into Rails. We get a little bit deep into what makes them tick and why they are the way they are. And then we talk about what they're working on. We talk about the things that make them well-known or make them interesting. And a lot of times, it's the stuff that goes beyond the code that really makes these people tick and makes them the kind of people that we want to hear about. And so I put together a show called My Ruby Story. You can find it at myrubystory.com. And it's where I interview these people and just get the stories of these people and how they came into programming. So if you want to hear inspirational stories or get ideas on how you can actually advance your career, then go check it out at myrubystory.com. Another thing is, remember what I said before about a recession can affect one sector or multiple sectors or all sectors. The odds of a recession affecting all sectors, it's pretty low. But it might affect many sectors, and it will definitely affect at least one sector. This means that you probably don't want to be in just one vertical market. And if you haven't heard the term before, a vertical market is one area of the economy. So it could be aerospace. It could be chip manufacturing. It could be education. It could be agriculture. It could be any number of things. And typically, when we specialize, we specialize not just in a certain technology, specialize not just in a certain set of uh, um, you know, skills that we have that we want to pass along and use, but also in a certain sector. So I help with mobile apps in the farming sector. 
I'm sure, by the way, that exists right there. Um, you know, I help with security for banks, that sort of thing. Try to move into additional horizontals if you can, so that if the banks all go belly up, you're not totally stuck. There will be other companies that know about you. Now that's going to be hard. Moving hard, you know, moving to a different, moving horizontally to a different vertical, as it were, can be difficult. But I think it's worth putting in the effort because if one sector goes goes kaput, it won't be all sectors and it won't be all the time. The other thing is you probably want to work on not just B2B, but also B2C. And this is a strategy that I've started implementing over the last year as well. Um, there tends to be almost no, and I had a previous solo episode about this a few weeks ago, there tends to be very little overlap between my work B2C and B2B. My mailing list is for B2C and um, you know the courses I do in person are B2B. But I see much more potential, especially during a recession in B2C. Why? First of all, when there's a recession, um, individuals want to get a leg up. They want to prove that they are good enough for a job. Because think of it, there are fewer people working, more people applying for each job. How do you demonstrate to a potential employer that you are really the right candidate? Well, you come in with more training and even more certification. And yes, I'm thinking about doing some form of certification for my online courses so that people who take my courses will get some piece of paper that says, or I guess a piece of you know, electronic paper that says that they took the course successfully. And that's going to be worth something to them when they go to a job interview. So if you're in the training world at all, or if you're interested in the training world, or if there are services you can offer to people to sort of better their skills so that they can get a better new job, all the better. I think that can really help you. Maybe you can also do some info products for them. And info products can be short ebooks. If you're thinking, wow, I can't write a book. I can't write an ebook. Yes, you can. You absolutely can. It doesn't have to be long. It doesn't have to be detailed. You don't have to sell it for a lot of money. But if you sell like a 10 or 20 page ebook for $2 or $5, and if it has really useful information, that's a great way to start building your authority. You don't have to write that much. You can even do a cheat sheet for, I don't know, some sort of DevOps technology and just sell it for a tiny amount of money. You wanna start setting up the infrastructure to get money from people online, whether they are companies or individuals. And again, I think I'm not trying to you know, get rid of my corporate clients and you shouldn't be trying to get rid of corporate clients either because they pay well and they work a lot in advance. But if you can work uh, with uh, B2C as well, if you can try to break into that market in even a small way, then that will be your entry ramp to larger, uh, uh, you know, larger dollar figures and more complex products and more complex courses that you might be able to sell as well. Um, look around, try and understand, you know, uh, Amy Hoy talks about a uh, um, sales safari. Maybe you don't really know what people want. In fact, you probably don't know what people want. So go online to forums, go online to various places where these people hang out and find out what are their problems? What is really tough for them? What do they not understand? And then create a small product. Again, start small. Create a small product that will solve their problems for a small amount of money. And that'll give you feedback from customers and that'll help you move up and up and up. And I'm specifically saying that you should do small things for small amounts of money because this sort of business is not for everyone. And you might discover it's not good for you. But if you can break into these other markets, if you can either break into other verticals or break into B2C, that will help to cushion any blow that might come from a recession. Again, the advice that I had for myself, I'm gonna to give to you as well. Um, most freelancers don't have employees, but if you do have employees, 
be careful of having people on full-time salaries. I'm not saying it's a wrong thing to do. I'm not saying you shouldn't ever do it. I'm saying be careful because if you're left holding the bag for someone's salary, that can be, depending on the laws in your country, uh, very painful to deal with. In Israel, for example, for every year that someone works for you, you have to pay them one month salary for severance. So I had a few people who worked for me for over a year, and some cases even two years. So I had to pay them several months of salary uh, out of pocket. Now, there are ways to deal with that. For example, um, in the last few years, whenever I've had employees, I just put the money aside when I pay their salary. And my accountants made sure that I do that. So the, the money exists and it doesn't have to come from anywhere. But you should definitely consider if you have employees, uh, um, like how you have them to, again, recession to proof your business a little bit. I would also argue that there are many SaaS opportunities, software as a service opportunities, right? As people love to point out, Google was launched during a recession. Um, many other companies were launched during recessions also, and they are often the ones that have to be profitable right away because there's none of this, oh, let's just grow and get big and hopefully we'll figure out the business model later on. Rather, they needed to prove that they were profitable from day one or close to day one. And the, the famous story about Google is they had no idea how to make any money. Uh, if I remember correctly, uh, they, they tried to sell themselves to Yahoo and a few other companies. That didn't go so well. Um, so someone came up with this idea for advertising. And of course, now today, Google is effectively printing money because they're basically an advertising company and a very, very effective one at that. Facebook, same sort of thing as well. So try to come up with SaaS, like, like for particular vertical markets that you see are not being served well, especially in the recession. Maybe there are people who are looking for jobs, right? Maybe there are people looking for certain kinds of jobs. Maybe there are people looking for all sorts of different things that you can definitely look into. And again, this is not the time to be trying to grow without profit. Uh, again, this is the late October 2019. And so in the last few weeks, people have been pounding on WeWork and Uber and Lyft and a few other companies that recently went public, saying to them, what is this nonsense about not making money? What is this nonsense about, oh, we're just going to spend tons of money on marketing and that'll give us more people and that'll give us more money to spend on marketing to get more people and you know, ad infinitum. No, 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 you have to, have to start making a profit. And so thinking about what's a small but profitable uh, product that you can come up with or service that you can come up with, whether it's a SaaS, an info product, a course, or anything else, or software, all of those are totally, totally reasonable. Look, WordPress, right? Lots of people produce software for WordPress. Well, lots of people use WordPress. Find some group that is working with WordPress because that's not going to go away. And then offer them some cheap solution to their problem. That will give you an entry in, into there and it'll give you clients and customers, and little by little by little, you'll be able to grow there. Now, all of this is stuff that I'm trying to do. Once again, I am putting together more and more courses for B2C. I'm trying to get lots of people on my mailing list. I am trying to get my name out as much as possible so that if and when, and I dare say when, my corporate clients start to slow down and say, wait a second, actually, we're not interested in so many courses, I'll have options for them. And in fact, lately, several of them started to say, well, we don't really want to pay for you to come in and do in-person training for four days. Maybe we can get an online course from you and then have you come in for three days. Fortunately, I have the online course, so I can do that with them. And finding ways to mix and match to satisfy clients' needs, I think is a great way to go as well. You don't need to be scared of a recession, right? I think that's my point here in this episode. Don't be scared, but do try to be prepared. Oh, that sounds like a really corny slogan. It sounds like a corny like military type slogan from the 50s. Don't be scared, be prepared. Um, but basically, you it, uh, there's no guarantee of success. But if you go with your eyes open and you try to figure out 
make sure that the niches you're in and the businesses you're in, the verticals you're in and the technologies you're in have staying power um, and, and that they are going to be willing to invest in whatever you're doing or that you have solutions for them that are so fantastic that they will want to buy them from you. Um, maybe you could even take advantage. Here's another idea. Take advantage of the fact, it's a little you know cruel, of the fact that some of these companies will be laying people off. Where will they be laying people off? Who are the first people who will be laid off? And then maybe you can come up with a software solution to sell to them to replace those people. Cruel? Yes. Business opportunity? Yes as well. All right. I hope this was useful and interesting. I hope it leaves you optimistic and thinking as opposed to uh, you know, shuddering in a dark closet, worrying about what's going to happen recession-wise. Um, do try to keep up with economic news as well. It's I find it powerful to know what's going on as opposed to just sort of have things hit me. Um, I listen to all sorts of things. I'll, I'll, I'll do pics in just a moment. I'll mention a few of my favorite sources for that. Anyway, I hope this was a useful episode for you. Let me go through a few picks. Uh, so first of all, some of the places that I get economic news, uh, two podcasts that I love. One is Slate Money from Slate Magazine Online. The Slate Money podcast is a great review of the week's uh, business and finance news uh, with Felix Salmon and Emily Peck and Anna Shemansky. They're always fun to listen to. And a second one is Marketplace, which is a public radio uh, daily newscast. It is fantastic, fantastic, fantastic um, analysis, insight. It's pretty US-centric, but they talk about the world quite a bit. They have uh, um, correspondents in London and in Shanghai as well, and uh, they talk about that not a small amount, and it's uh, useful to keep up on things that way. In terms of other picks, I will tell you that uh, for years now, I've been using a program called Double Twist on my Mac to synchronize with my Android phone, synchronize podcasts. Double Twist no longer works with Catalina, and so I was forced to go find something else. And what I found was something called Podcast Addict. I must say the functionality is phenomenal. The user interface, not so much. But if you are a programmer, you will feel at home with the almost infinite number of knobs and switches you can turn to download podcasts of the types you want and the ways you want and the archiving you want and so on and so forth. All that great stuff. Definitely, definitely encourage you to try it. Podcast Addict. Uh, there's a paid edition which gives you some more features. I decide to shell the money for just because, well, I am a pod podcast addict. Uh, and, and while I was replacing that on my phone, I also decided to replace the mail program, and that's called Blue Mail. And I have so far over the last few days been very happy with Blue Mail as opposed to the default mail program that came with my uh, Huawei phone. Anyway, that's it for this episode. As always, if you have suggestions, thoughts, ideas for guests, topics we should consider, please don't hesitate to get in touch with us via our show page. If you want to get in touch with me personally, I would be happy to hear from you as well uh, on Twitter or uh, email. And uh, thanks very much for listening. And we'll be back next week with another episode of The Freelancer Show. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.